This is Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the Retail Doctor, sponsored by Core Logic. Although that first pop up wasn't as successful as she hoped, she stepped back, she took that information in, said, Maybe I'm thinking about my target market incorrectly. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with your host, Bob Fibbs, the champion for a more human connection in retail for over 30 years as a retail doctor. Bob is the authority on brick and mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest luxury brands to independent retailers of all sizes. Today, I get the opportunity to talk with Melissa Gonzalez, CEO of the Lioness Group. Now, she works with companies such as Nextcom, Nordstrom, and Burrow to foster foundational consumer engagement and evolve their offering. And she was honored with the Women in Design Award of the Year by Contract Magazine and in 2019 was recognized as one of LinkedIn as well as Design Retail's Top 10 Retail Design Influencers of the Year. Welcome, Melissa. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to talk to you. Now, I think of you as the queen of pop-up shops. Is that correct? That is correct. I do have that title and I wear it with honor. Being a pioneer, you know, we didn't invent pop-ups, but definitely living and breathing them since my first pop-up in fall of 2009. And so it's definitely kind of where the company was founded from and continues to be one of our core offerings. Okay, so what was that first store and where was it? And is it different than the way you do it now? So the first store, in the beginning, I was working with a lot of brands who really were looking at it from a seasonality standpoint. They had just launched. Some of them were selling on Etsy. Shopify was just becoming a thing. So it wasn't even as robust of an e-commerce platform for most of them back then. And it was really an opportunity to tell their story in a space build human connection and drive sales, right? And those sales that they drove were critical because this was like the one time of the year they were going to get to have a store. What we've seen is the use cases of pop-ups continue to evolve. And I think that that's what makes it more robust strategy. And you're seeing it more and more as brands from all walks and all sizes, whether they're indie brand, a fast-growing VC-backed brand or a national brand where pop-up is part of the toolkit of how they show up in physical retail environments. Now, I'm an old mall rat, so I got my start in the malls back before you were born, back in the 80s. And, you know, back then a pop-up was Hickory Farms, or they had a little mall cart at the the time. (laughs) And pop-ups could be anything now, right? I mean, you could be out on a street, you could be inside another store. Can you just take us into that world? Are there, take us a primer. What is it? What are some opportunities that exist there that wouldn't be in a online store, for example, or in a traditional, because obviously the lease is the big thing I think of with a brick and mortar store, but what else? Yeah. I mean, the good part about a pop-up is that, you know, there's an inherent sense of urgency and there's a different expectation usually that consumers walk in. They automatically expect to discover something, whether it's a limited sale, new product offering, a brand, maybe they covered it online. So you're already kind of working with that psychology, right? If you think about the opportunity in that. But we always ask the question similar that you're asking me now, what is it that we can deliver in physical that, you know, maybe isn't being answered online, right? A lot of the brands that we work with today, they do have a robust digital strategy, which means they have a lot of data. So we say, let's look at the funnel, right? Not only how are people getting to you, what are they doing on your site? Where are they dropping off? Does that get any insights to us of maybe what are the pain points that you're not able to answer? on an e-commerce platform. Maybe it's fit. 
Maybe it's understanding fabric. Maybe it's styling. It could be so many different aspects. And we try to incorporate that into the in-store experience. So when you think of footwear, that's a perfect example where when we approach the pop-ups, we don't want to be confined with the limitations of we have to worry about inventory, right? Because it's usually a limited footprint. And really, that's not the big problem we're solving for. If they have e-commerce, then they could do dropship, most likely, right? So it's about fit. It's about understanding if it's a woman, maybe it's understanding heel height size, maybe it's understanding narrow versus wide, maybe it's understanding, you know, the different fabrics and materials and colors. It's gaining that confidence so that that consumer is then more comfortable continuing to shop you in a hybrid scenario, whether you have a pop-up store or they're shopping you again online. Brilliant. Brilliant. I know I worked with Shoes of Prey and they had, um, they were an online brand and they had put them into Nordstrom. And then that mm-hmm. didn't that didn't keep going, but they learned an awful lot about the yeah. comfort level, and they thought that their their target were young women, and yet it often was much older women who couldn't get the size they wanted. So it was like a big well, we didn't see that coming. So, is there any yeah. ahas that you've experienced with a client? Like we think it's X, sure. and then it's Y. Yes, for sure. We had an exact scenario like that years ago. It was um, an independent brand called Nora Gardner. And she was targeting a younger demographic when it came to workwear. And so she had, you know, short hemlines and a little bit tighter fit. And but that's not who was gravitating to it. That's not who was coming to visit. Um, It was more of that professional woman who was more in her 30s and 40s who wanted attainable fashion in her workwear but still wanted to keep it a little bit more professional than sexy. And so as she was getting to have the opportunity for the month to have those conversations with those women, although that first pop-up wasn't as successful as she hoped, she stepped back, she took that information in, said, maybe I'm thinking about my target market incorrectly. She uh, made modifications to the design, came back nine months later, and she, I think she had a, three, uh, a one-month pop-up. She broke even in the first week. So it was utilizing those insights to reposition her brand because that is another um, opportunity in pop-ups. They often serve as this really vocal focus group for you where you can learn a lot. It sounds like a lab almost. Yeah, exactly. What we put here. Now, you quote uh, on the Lioness site that one in three pop-ups expand to long-term brick and mortar. Is that surprising to to some clients? You know, it is tied a little bit to their goals when they come to us. So for us, um, one of our core areas have have become fast-growing D2C or digital native brands that are proven concept at scale. And then the next leg for them is physical retail. So they are coming to us with a pop-up as a prototype mentality, right? Um, So we don't see those conversions as much happening if it's you know, a brand that's just coming for high impact, short-term marketing opportunity that that's not counted in this, but for the others, yes, they, their hope is that this will help them prove the metrics that they need to prove for themselves and for their investors, that it is a justifiable investment, that it is an important touch point in the consumer journey. Um, and, and what we've noticed over the years, and I'm sure you have as well, is it's gotten so expensive to compete online only. Right. So when you get to a certain threshold of sales and you go from having this really um, focused approach in how you're targeting marketing, but then you have to continue to widen that net and widen that net online, it gets a lot more expensive. And so you take that opportunity to then have a physical retail store. And it also goes back to your question, the purpose of physical. It's an opportunity for them to either 
further uh, build community around the brand. It's an opportunity for them to take their followers and hopefully convert them from followers to, 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 you know, to fans, to evangelists. Um, it's getting over those humps of confidence around either fit or fabric or just understanding how to use the product. And so, um, and so because of that, most, a lot of them have been able to prove that this is effective in doing that. And they've also been able to, and I think retail technology tools has further helped this, track the attribution, right? Um, and they're saying things like, okay, it's not just about the, the sales and, and the four walls. They're also seeing a customer that maybe shopped them before they opened doors is now spending more. They're returning products less frequently, right? There's other things that they're being able to track to say this justifies helping us increase lifetime value of a customer. So I've opened more than my share of uh, stores and... Um... I want to hear your best and worst story of working with local officials in a pop-up. Local officials, like um, like when we have to raise uh, t- uh, occupancy limits and get a TPA in the fire Anything like comes. that or health <laughs> or all those fun little stories, if you had a good uh, or a bad... <laughs> We love I mean, that. that's always that's always a fun one. You know, we got to raise occupancy limits, and it depends where you are. New York City is a little tough when it comes to you know, like permitting. Permitting is an area in general across all store where I feel like it's underestimated, and it was definitely even more challenging in COVID. You know, to be able to to get that. So we work as hard as we can with the brands, especially if it's a pop up, to be as strategic as possible to do what they need to do. But there's opportunities where maybe there's you're pulling it over the counter permit or something like that versus going into a major demo and renovation when you really need to prove concept first. Um, but that tends to be one of the trickiest. So you would stay away from, if you had to do that, that would not be a priority. You would rather like when you're talking to a client early, it would be like, we really don't want to get into changing the space. We'd rather go in, right? You don't want to have to Ideally, what are the hallmarks to stay away from that? I guess that's what I'm curious about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, usually it's a good TI project. We take that lens as we're scouting locations with our clients, right? To say, okay, like what's going to be feasible in the timeline you want to open? What is going to be feasible within your budget parameters? And it's not that we don't want to do it correctly and not file the permits, but maybe it's not justified at this point, mm-hmm. right? In the trajectory and in our goals to take that route. So how are we limiting how much we're demoing or how how are we um, limiting electrical work or anything like that? Um, and then once we have those learnings, we go to the first permanent location, then you take a bigger undertaking for that and you have a longer timeline, ideally more budget, things like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we've had plenty of scenarios where they've wanted to do extraordinary things or the trickiest thing for us is if a client signs a space and then comes to us. Um, although, right, because then we're just stuck with those conditions. It's like we, a reality show. Make it work. <laughs> you make it work. And I won't name any names of projects, but we've right. definitely had our projects where the neighbor had a rat infestation and we had to deal with that situation or the property's CO expired and we would have to renew it in the amount of time we we're going to open doors, which was going to be in less than three months. So there's definitely some hurdles that we have to overcome. I love those stories. I love that. <laughs> you don't have to name names. That's all right. That's right. Well, you know, you're also an entrepreneur. So what's the biggest challenge in starting your business and how did you overcome it? I think, you know, for me, it probably was getting my name out there. Um, but yeah. in your space, what what would have been for you? 
For sure. You know, I mean, my, my background is working on a trading desk on Wall Street, right? So it's not that I came from the retail world. I studied retail stocks and understood the stories and the financials. But um, so my, my background is a little different than the traditional design background. I see myself more as a storyteller. So I, I use that um, approach in the work as a whole. And I think that that's been helpful for me because I think to be a, a successful voice in the industry, there has to be an authenticity behind it. And so for, it took a while for me to really learn what my voice was going to be and really, you know, the consistency in that. And you have, you have one too, right? And I think, right. Everybody has like, if you Mine say your name. Retiring. That's what my oh, voice yeah. is. Oh yeah. Very shy. Very shy. <laughs> um, but so that, I think that's really important, right? It's, it's, as you grow as a company, you have to balance also like as a founder being the face of the brand, but also having a brand that lives bigger than you too, because as you grow and scale, you need your clients to feel confident to work with whatever team you've assigned to be on that project. So that's always been my careful balance as an entrepreneur that I'm always working on is that how do I maintain my voice in the industry, um, doing my research, making sure that I have, you know, I have, I have confidence in my point of view and, and what I'm sharing. And um, for me, it's really about creating experiences, right? And the design and the space and all that behind that supports that. But I'm always thinking, what's the story? What's the consumer experience? What's the, what's the journey we're taking them on here? How is that building human connection? And then, so that's been my kind of like North Star guiding light as I think through what I put out into the world and, um, and the advice I give to clients and, 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 and what I say to the media. And I think it's really having that consistency um, is really important. Yeah, I would, I would agree. You know, um, people keep talking about, oh, experiential retail and all these different things. We're going to put a rock climbing wall in the store. I'm like, really? That's experiential? No. If you want to see it, to me, the brand standard right now is camp in New York City. Oh, I yeah. Think that is a sure. brand who knows who they are. They figured it out. They've got legs. They have done incredible partnerships. There's so many things that are that are working in their favor at a time when we're hearing, no, it's all about, you know, they can buy toys online. It's like, no, that's not really what this is about. So is there another brand that comes to mind um, that you think is is at that level that people should be aware of? Yeah, I do think about camp a lot. And um, I think that's a great example. I think in different ways, different brands are doing it. I mean, I think Nike continues to push the industry forward and how that they they've been so smart and utilizing their content versus commerce and personalization strategy. Right. So it's a different different approach than, say, how camp is doing it from an experiential level. But I think that they're a perfect brand who can do what they're doing. Right. And they have this active community in their app where they do workouts together. Think about how much they're learning about their consumers and their interests there and then being able to leverage that active community in their stores. Um, I think that that's, that's a really strong example. You're also seeing a lot more brands that are kind of taking that community approach, which I think is really smart too, of, um, the store is about a somewhat level of localization. I think what Foot Locker did, and they, they launched this pre-pandemic, but um, uptown, you know, is it, it's more of a community store, you know, and they made a community space out of it and they leaned in on that and the sales followed. And when I spoke to the team um, about some of the surprise learnings they had, one of the things was that one of the um, 
one of the popular uses of the space that was driving to all times where kids were going there to have a place to do their homework. Like think about the emotional connection of that to a brand and a, and a family that this has become the community space where my kid has a place to, to do their homework and to further education. And then that's, that's a different level of loyalty that you're creating the next time that that kid needs sneakers. Yeah. That's, that's really kind of touches your heart because you realize the situation that a lot of kids could be in where it's not safe at home or there's, you know, physical or emotional violence or just being alone. And I think the, the tragedy in retail right now is people don't understand people who feel they matter buy more instead of if I just give them a discount, they'll come and endure our crappy service. And yes, I'm looking at several of you who are listening to me because that's all you have in your wheelhouse. You haven't really figured this out. And you know, even you go back to a Starbucks who early understood the third place and everybody says, oh, we're the third place. It's like, no, they were the ones that came up with that. Whatever yours is, is something different, right? But us trying to figure out where do we fit in and then where is that comfort level? That is a wonderful story. And we're going to continue with Melissa in just a minute. We're going to take a little bit of a break. Then I'm going to ask you about your Italian luxury footwear brand that's uh, seeing a 50% larger uh, cart size in-store than online. But we're not going to say that yet because we're going to take a break to listen to our sponsor from CoreLogic. Millennials and shoppers alike have many options when it comes to retail shopping. Competition is fierce, and CoreLogic wants to make sure your business is front and center of the transaction. Robust property data gives retailers of any size a competitive edge with a clear 360-degree customer view and a deeper level of insights into their targeted audience. Retail marketers can use CoreLogic's trusted property data to build a successful customer loyalty experience. By identifying new customers and uncovering accurate marketing insights, CoreLogic will help your business thrive. Learn more at corelogic.com find. Okay, we are back with Melissa Gonzalez. We're talking pop-up shop. She's CEO of Lionesque. And uh, you were, uh, on your site, you talk about an Italian luxury footwear brand having a 50% larger cart uh, in-store than online. So what does that take for a retailer? Yeah, 